Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special surprise, not really, Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, is Dr. Anivan Mahanti. G'day, Doc. I'm very good, Captain. How are you? I'm exceptionally well, mate. It's good to be with you on this Sunday. No, we, we always just. I did leave a little bit of a cliffhanger on Friday, didn't I? With maybe we will, maybe we won't. Do you reckon anyone fell for uh, that? No. I, I, <laughs> I count that as zero. Do you want to think about that a bit longer or are you, you're done? Uh, no, zero. <laughs> <laughs> we've got some really great questions this week, so we'll get straight into them. Um, the first question we've got comes from Chris. Now, I, this is a kind of a multi faceted question but it's all on the same point which he says being a long-term shareholder of Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett buying back recently 18 billion dollars worth of shares I have a question does he see other American companies priced too highly and I'm of the opinion Australia has more of it in a run-up how do you see the ASX going forward I'm also worried about money printing so there's lots there. There's Berkshire Hathaway. There's buybacks. There's the valuation of American companies. There's valuation of the ASX, and there's money printing, as well as you asking us for a forecast. I'm going to say on your behalf, Doc. I don't reckon you're going to give a forecast. I'm not going to give a forecast. Although feel free to talk about it if you'd like. Um, where do you want to start with Chris's question, mate? You're welcome to start wherever you want. Uh, I guess the but maybe we start with that. Are American companies? They've had a massive run up. They're at record highs despite COVID. I. I gotta say, I'm like the, the, the kind of the the little value investor in me that kind of was the kernel of my investing life looks at that and goes, man, like I was absolutely saying we should keep investing regardless during the, during the pandemic. I think it, the markets were always going to get back to their previous highs at some point. That was all likely possible. Whatever was it, fifteen percent higher than now the February high in the US? I think close close enough to it anyway. And yet they're still having you know thousands of deaths a day. They're still well and truly in the middle of a pandemic that we seem to be getting closer to the end of. Um, I'm all for optimism, mate, but can can we genuinely justify US stock prices as a group, given where they were in February, given what we're going through right now, the current and potential impacts to the economy, and these things are flying high? Is that is that are they, is the market they reasonably priced, or are people getting a little bit carried away? I guess I'll put my mercenary hat on again, <laughs> uh, and 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 I hope. Do you ever take it off? Man. Do you ever take it off? Well, no. When I when I invest, <laughs> I I absolutely invest because if I'm investing. Yeah. Uh, money, then I should invest y- y- thinking like a mercenary. So I put everything aside mm-hmm. and I just try to think oh, as much as I can. So here's here's one very thing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to sound callous, but does the death count in a particular country even matter from an investing point of view? I guess the extent Maybe, to which it impacts the, the the broader economic activity in that country. So you're right, there's, sure. no, there's no straight line yeah. between the number of deaths from a pandemic and the movements of the market there's no direct line but there's plenty of paths where you might say that a health crisis leads to an economic crisis leads to in theory lower profits leads to in theory lower share prices that that is one i'm not i wouldn't make that direct correlation because there's other things at play but you know chris might be thinking or worried about that that kind of line of thinking yeah so so yeah so 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 first i'll yeah so so there is an that is a relationship but that's not direct is my point number one okay right number two is um you know, there's a there's a fallacy, right? So the fallacy here is, what has changed? the uh, The best technology companies, uh, the large ones that we talk about, they are in America. Uh, for the foreseeable future, they are in America. There are, and some of the best technology companies we create here are also listed in America. So right, yeah. exactly. what has changed? Yep. Yeah, a class a class in being one as an example. So what has changed? Nothing. Um, do we think that these companies, you know, this is just a mercenary type of thinking, right? Do we think that Apple is going to continue doing greater 
greater things in the future? We don't know. Maybe that's the question that you want to answer. But I can almost be certain that an Apple and a Alphabet and a Microsoft, as an example, are going to be way more wonderful than owning Commonwealth Bank, NAB, Westpac, and so on, right? It's just those are global businesses with, you know, the best minds working on it with whatever. These are local businesses basically participating in money printing, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the mercenary-like feeling, right? If you take, if the, so, uh, so if you take that mercenary approach, then, you know, is it justified or not? That's a valuation call you want to make, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say that a lot of those businesses that you're looking in the index, and I'm again talking about indexes I- I- from an index point of view, large, ind- large indices, I think the U.S. large indices have growth built into them. The Australian ASX 200 doesn't have growth built into them. It's basically mm-hmm. handicapped by the type of companies there are, right? There are interesting companies which you look at, which are outside of, say, the ASX 100 or maybe even outside the ASX 200. But the index as we know it today has some issues, right? Now, there are ex- exceptions to the rule, right? There are you yeah. know, companies like, say, uh, um, Afterwave, which, which, which are basically saying, okay, we built the technology here and we are going to try to commercialize mm-hmm. it globally, mm-hmm. right? And today's Afterwave's valuation is probably half of Westpac Bank. Is it surprising? Probably not, because their market opportunity is significantly larger than Westpac Bank's market opportunity, right, mm-hmm. as an example. So I think that's the type of thinking, if you apply them, you have to repair that world, you know, you, these are you comparing, say, the S&P 500 with the ASX 200 is like basically comparing apples with bananas. They're two different things, <laughs> completely sure. two different things. Sure, sure. And I think there's just no reason to compare. Um, okay. Let me let me take you back to the, the U.S. for a second, though. So I, I take the comparison, um, it, it, and let me make the let me make the devil's advocate argument on behalf of Chris here. So you, you mentioned the quality of the U.S. companies, you mentioned their growth paths, all that kind of stuff. I will say to you, as a devil's advocate, that was always true, has always been true, was true in February, is true today. All of those things remain unquestionably right. But <laughs> the, the difference, I suppose, is price between then and now, and the circumstances these companies find themselves in. Apple was always better than CBA. Amazon was always better than uh, I don't know, pick a company, Telstra. That whatever you know, whichever th- those those things aren't different. So we can we can argue, we can agree there is a quality difference and arguably a relative valuation difference on that basis. So let's say the U.S. market is worth 18x and the Australian market is worth 14x earnings, whatever the numbers are, it doesn't matter. So, but, but that was always true. Between February and now, we have a worse economic climate and higher share prices. And Chris is going, okay, let's even assume that what we've just all agreed on is true. U.S. investors seem to be paying even more for these quality companies in an even worse economic environment, and that got me a little bit concerned. Um, so again, I, I, I would challenge all of those, right? Is it really sure. worse? So again, so as I said, right, the way I think, uh, I, I think it is useful for investors to take a bit of a global perspective, not a local mm-hmm. perspective. We like to think of a GDP number. So I, I've seen these things that circulated on Twitter, and that you know, it. it Commenting on these might feel like, okay, you know, I'm raining on your parade and I don't want to do that, so I don't comment on them. But one of them that we see is, oh, look at the debt count and look at how we have done with COVID and therefore look at our GDP. But the GDP number is completely fake. The GDP number is basically a function of how much money has been stimulized and how, right? Mm-hmm. So there is, a, there is a question of how the money has come in and what it has done. Mm-hmm. However, if you, if you think about jobless or number of employment numbers that have been created, mm. then irrespective of what's happening there, and again, I'm not trying to say that, you know, the case count or the debt count is good. All I'm saying is, yeah, sure, sure. from a pure mercenary perspective, if you think yeah, about yeah, it, yeah. well, yeah. 
the unemployment numbers, the way it has come back in the U.S. is fantastic, mm-hmm. which means jobs are back. Economy is roaring. And so, worse, so worse than it was that, right? I, I think it yeah. was arguing the U.S. economy is a better place than February. Yeah, well, no, no, no. So I'm, I'm talking about a relative comparison, right? Yeah, sure. I think what, yeah. So I think on a relative comparison, their, their job numbers are significantly better. Yep. Irrespective of the COVID numbers looking significantly worse, so I think mm-hmm. the, I think mm-hmm. the problem with individual investors is everybody wants to think in a unidimensional way. Well, I am mm-hmm. I like this, and therefore mm-hmm. this seems correct, and I think mm-hmm. I think that's very dangerous for your money and your wallet. Mm-hmm. I think you need to be a little bit impassionate and 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 I think like a mercenary when you're investing your funds. <laughs> I think so. That's what I do. Like I you know I ignore that. And I said okay, well that that looks fine and that looks good. So this is number one. Number two is I. I think what was true, um, a couple of different things, right? What the pandemic has done, and I think this is the underlying thing to remember, that the pandemic is actually, was, uh, the other thing I keep saying to people, and people don't get it, is the pandemic has actually fundamentally changed things, but it has changed things in favor of digitization, mm-hmm. right? Now, the pandemic solution is also going to come from biotechnology companies. The two that we have heard, they're also American. Okay, one of them has a German collaborator, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so you would naturally assume that the benefits of that also flow there mm-hmm. to those companies. At least I'm not mm-hmm. saying it flows to America. It flows to those sure, companies sure. and their shareholders, right? Yeah, it doesn't yeah. flow elsewhere. You could say that, you know, XYZ company has manufacturing capability. That doesn't matter. Serum Institute in mm-hmm. India is going to manufacture, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all of these, you know, vaccines for the developing world. That doesn't really matter. The matter is that the the value prop of this this technology, the mRNA technology, is going to go flow back to those companies that are developing that technology. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to a digitization world, and my case is this, if you're going to a digitization world, you want to focus on companies that are digitization focused, that are focused on e-commerce, that are focused on taking us to the cloud, that are focused on taking us to a 5G world, that is taking us to something different. And those are not our banks and miners. Mm-hmm. That's the case. And if that's the case, and if that's the way it's going to pan out, mm-hmm. that is better than this. And, and therefore, I do not even worry too much about the valuation. Yes, I worry about valuations, but if you're going to deliver me 20% growth compounded mm-hmm. um, for a decade, valuation is not the first thing that I'm going to worry. Valuation is a worry for com- companies that are growing at 5%. Mm-hmm. So, so that I, I, I think there's a, there's a bit of that. I think we shouldn't confuse, um, you know, case counts, health benefits, this, that, mm-hmm. to investing our dollars because you know ultimately capitalism means that you know we're looking at a globalized world mm. benefits are going to flow to those that are providing the best and for us to protect our portfolios and our wallet we should basically invest in what is going to best give us the best returns in my mind that's not the banks yeah i still I, i'm not sure that that's uh, i think we sometimes run the risk of going back to comparing australia versus looking at the u.s in isolation and saying is the, is the market expensive or not i think that's a separate question I think I think as a as an index, I think it's a reasonable question because it does, by definition, comprise both the best companies you're talking about and another 490 odd in the S and P 500, or you know another 29 in the Dow. So there's still some sense that at a relative level, it's possible for all those things you say to be true, and for the US market to underperform from this point for a period of time because share prices are already too high, right? It's possible to say, well, you know, would you invest in the S P 500 index now at this valuation, or would you wait for a better valuation? Those may be different questions to will the S&P outperform the ASX either now or in the future, right? So I think there's there are slightly different questions to be asked about whether the the US market is highly valued, overvalued, undervalued, fairly valued, which are independent of, of alternative options for your money in the sense that, and I'll use the really simple example, which is overused, but let's do it for fun. 
Um, the fact that tech was going to define the next 20 years didn't stop the NASDAQ from being overvalued and, and only just maybe finding its way back to a record high some 15 or 20 years later. There was, there was times when the trend was real, the outlook was real, but the prices were simply too high. None of what you said, if you'd said it in 1999, would have been wrong, but it would have been a mistake to be buying the, the index or the NASDAQ in 2000 relative to a better opportunity to buy at a different price. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. It's, yeah, again, uh, it's always better to buy companies that are evolving versus buying companies that are stagnant. I think your opportunity with we, uh, your opportunity, your margin of error on stagnancy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is very low. Your margin of error, your margin of, you know, of movement or the margin of, you know, you can make a mistake in your valuation and still be all right. Is So uh, again, and I think again, compare, okay. So I think here's something to think about, right? The index in most places is heavily weighted to something, right? So if you mm-hmm. think about the index, uh, the S&P 500 index, probably 40% of that is maybe the top 10, right? Um, or 10. So again, it really matters what the top 10 are doing. But yeah, underneath exactly. that, or top 10 or top 20, but underneath yeah. that too is important, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so I, I just, in, as an index, that's just a superior index in terms of what it has. Mm-hmm. Um, the index uh, here is just dominated by the banks and financials, which is really a problematic thing, right? That goes back to what we were talking about uh, the other uh, on on Thursday. Is is again, most of our innovative companies are the smaller ones. Mm-hmm. It's not Absolutely. that we don't have innovative. The most of our innovative companies are the smaller ones. They are outside the SX two hundred, yep. and. Um, and that's the way it is, right? And there is going to be a breakout out of that, right? There's going to be companies like the buy now, pay later segment, for example, in which we are leading, where where there will be they will be small and they will break out into the top fifty, yeah. right? That will happen, but those things take time, yeah. right? They they just don't happen overnight. In the meantime, I think the index hugging idea is has a higher propensity for uh, delivering subpar returns, mm-hmm. right? I think that's that's you know like if I had to make a if a choice I would say well I you know if I had to beat an index if I had to beat ASX um, all odds or ASX two hundred by one percent I'd just buy S and P five hundred and be done right, okay. right? Um, and if I want to do do better than that there are other ways of doing that nice I like it mate so I think so I think we probably answered second question which is the <laughs> the uh, he thinks uh, Australia's got more of a run up I think is I think you're saying there's more opportunity left I think the way he's phrased it but I'm not entirely sure um, do you have any long term yes now given the ASP is at an all time record and the ASX is still I want to say 10-ish percent below our February high does does that valuation gap make you think that in the short term we might see the ASX outperform as it recovers more or do you if you if you put a dollar down now over the next say five years does the does the higher perform better performance of the ASP over the last eleven months or nine months is that is that taking some of the future gain out relative to the ASX or is it still well and truly going to outperform the ASX from here? I'll go with my standard answer. I don't really think I worry too much about these indices and what they're doing. I don't worry about the banks largely because again, like I just I'm not so I'm not interested in getting an outperformance of a little bit. I want sure. I want a steady return, fifteen twenty percent if I can over a long period of time. And I just don't think you can you can deliver that by you know trying to uh, focus on the index. So, so maybe the index has like in the short term maybe, right? But if if everybody's thinking about that like oh it's you know it's below the high whereas they are above the high therefore we should be in the high. Well, I mean uh, the ASX All Odds has underperformed every other index, a major world index for the last ten years by a big margin, right? So it doesn't mean that it couldn't again like we don't know, right? Maybe for the next ten years it doesn't. Maybe the next ten years it does, right? 
I don't know the answer for that uh, because what I don't know is how the index is going to change over that time. Maybe the, maybe the index will substantially change. What I would be I would be more comfortable in saying is that if the index doesn't substantially change, my money would be on the ASX All Ordinaries delivering five percent return compounded, inclusive of dividends. If the index doesn't change, but if the index has changed, well, I mean there are there are companies like Afterpay that is going to get added to the index, right? Mm-hmm. And they're going to drive up. Return. So, how many of those? Of point, I mean, that, that is kind of the point of the. I think that's. Uh, I'd actually say, for, for what it's worth, that's actually the story of the S and P over the last couple of decades, right? If you grab, I haven't got it handy, but if you grab the top dozen companies of the S and P five hundred, maybe even ten years ago, certainly twenty years ago, you're thinking you've got Exxon Mobil, you've got GE, you've got probably GM might have been there, might have probably would have been in the top ten at some point. Um, who else would have been there? You know, these kind of the IBM old and things like that. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Walmart probably would have been there. Uh, the, yeah. the part of the story I think of of the outperformance of the S and P is exactly that. I think the 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 the, the, the prominence and growth of those small companies that kind of were added to the index, then kind of added to the index's growth in small amounts because they were smaller weightings. And then as they became larger but kept growing, the, the compound growth of the Apples, Amazons, Googles, Facebooks over the last decade have made them the biggest companies in, in the country. And I, I actually would imagine that's partly the, if you equal weighted both indices, I actually would speculate the ASX may well have done reasonably close to the S&P. It's the, it's the oversized, overweight positions that have grown so strongly in the US have done really, really well. Our hope, I suppose, if there is a, a candle of hope, a flicker of hope in Australia, is that some of those growing companies actually kind of do what here, what happened in the US 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, so so that, that's the hope, right? So if, if you yeah. have enough, so it's the, it's the change in the index over time and you want the index to be dynamic, mm-hmm. and that's, that's a reflection of a number of different things, mm-hmm. right? And, and right now there's a tiny movement towards that, you know, so you could say zero is leading, you know, zero and afterpay are examples, right? But they're still substantially smaller today <laughs> they really are yeah then then the companies yeah. that form the bulk of the index right and in my mind as i tweeted you know the other day uh, in my mind i think that is the central problem our obsession mm-hmm. with old ways of doing things you know let's pump up the house prices as much as we can because hey then we can have more debt right let's pump mm-hmm. up let's make sure these are sacred cows we're not going to kill the sacred cows because <laughs> hey it's a sacred cow um, yeah. I, I think the willingness to change is lacking mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. if the willingness to change is lacking then yes you're going to have some one person you know you know, uh, you know Nick Molnar is going to say okay I'm going to take the world by my storm but you know that's one person it's, it's just that the system mm-hmm. is not allowing uh, innovation at a rapid pace, right? Mm-hmm. So you have one afterpay, you know, holding the flag saying, okay, I'm going to take the world by storm, um, you know, and many other potential afterpays are being held back. So that's, mm-hmm. if if, there, if I have a regret, I think that's my regret. And that's why mm-hmm. I think the index, until I see any change towards that, I am not willing to bet more than 5% um, because yeah, right. I think that's the main problem. I'll let me make a statement see if you agree. I was going to say, I think we'll both agree, but I won't say that just until I say it. Um, I, I would expect the small odds to outperform the 200, the 200 outperform the 100, the 100 outperform the 20. It, it, for, for similar reasons. And I think that's largely true, right? The small cap companies tend to outperform large caps because they are the innovators, the growers, the disruptors. So as a group, it's, it's far more likely that until the smaller companies become a larger share of the 200, which is A, difficult, but B, probably inevitable at some level if they keep growing, um, it's, it takes a long time. It's a lot of it's a lot of heft to drag around. The, the small companies gonna do a lot of heavy lifting to make up for the stagnant growth of the Telstra's and the banks and the the, the grocers, that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the other key thing is that the, you want those companies eventually to have that kind of outperformance or dynamic dynamic behavior right. in the index. Yes. You yes. want you want 
companies which are actually with a global footprint to be the leaders, not mm-hmm. the local. Because again, the, the other problem is that our country as a size is small, our economy is actually small, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have locally dominant companies that dominate yeah. the index, effectively yeah. you're gonna have small companies dominate the index with yeah, right. low growth opportunities, right? Yes, yeah, so, yeah. so, you know, I'm looking forward to the day when the afterpay is gonna be bigger than Westpac, because I think right. that's a great day. <laughs> that'll be, that'll, in, in my mind, that's a fantastic day because that, that basically shows that, well, finally, you know, here's a way to beat uh, and you know the beauty is to win in the world, mm-hmm. right? And, and and that you know and, and they're on that that path. So I think that's yeah. that's that's an example or that's a way to think about it. I think. Awesome, thank you, mate. I, I, Chris's last question, which may be rolled up in Friday's answer or maybe even today's, but his last point is: I'm also worried about money printing. Um, now we've <laughs> talked about low rates. We've talked about QE. Do you have at a structural level a concern about the impact of money printing on the economy, on the markets? Um, is it something you think about, worry about, or is it kind of you know ancillary to the way you invest? Yeah, um, like I am concerned about money printing because I mean there's no such thing as free, and so 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 money printing I think you know to a large extent I mean if you're a sovereign. Um, in currency, and if you basically control your own currency, you can print as much money as you want, and eventually, you know, the Reserve Bank can basically return the money that has been <laughs> borrowed, right, uh, by printing more. Uh, I think mm. the issue then is that how does your currency behave because you know you're printing that money, um, mm. and then how does your currency behave relative to other currencies that are uh, also free floating, and you know, where mm. governments control the currency, right? So I think I don't have an answer to that. Um, I do assume that there's no such thing as free um, free lunch. So, I mean, if the money printing does not create new new things, new productivity improvements, I think there's a problem. Um, but I, I don't have a good view. I, I think, yeah, my short answer is the money is not being used productively, then I think we have a big problem. Um, if the money is being used productively to create new businesses, create new opportunities, create, you know, improve productivity, uh, do things that didn't exist today. Mm-hmm. Um, I think then, I think it'd be okay, mm-hmm. potentially. Bye. Nice, Matt. I like that. I like that. I think, I think that's a that's a really good point. I, I will only add, Chris, that I think Doc's absolutely right. The, the other thing I would say though is everyone else is doing it as well. So there's there's some sense of both mutually assured destruction, but also because these things tend to be relative. Um, I'm actually worried. <laughs> This is probably a worse outcome, right, than Chris even intended, but I'm actually worried about a global issue rather than a local one. I don't think Australia is going to be so far out on a limb uh, on money printing or on low interest rates that that we have a local problem that isn't a global problem. We may have it worse. Doc's talking about household debt, for example. That could be a problem. On the flip side, we have less government debt. So it's, you know, there's there's puts and takes there. But I I, I have been saying on and off for, for a couple of years now, I, I am concerned that with not a lot of ammunition left. I'm not worried about the current level of money printing, funnily enough. What I'm worried about is next time we have a problem. And I think if we don't get ourselves out of this and back to some sort of neutral position on monetary policy, I don't know what the next crisis gets solved by. And, and, and potentially, Doc's point of kicking the can down the road, if we can't solve it, it makes the next problem worse. And we've we've papered over the cracks last time and this time, GFC and, and COVID. Next time, we may well pay the piper for all three. And I think that's... I don't want to be negative or pessimistic, I don't necessarily worry people, uh, but I do. I do worry about what comes next. I think that's that's a. It's a question I don't have a good answer to, but it's a, a worry that I have. Now I will say, I don't see any other option than keep investing. By the way, I don't think there is a plan C or a plan B that says what I'm going to do is X, and then when something happens, I'm going to do Y. Um, 
I, I just don't, I don't know how you do it. And, and again, as I said many times, uh, it's an old Morgan Housel line. One of our former colleagues was kind of recycled and probably probably butchered. Uh, but more money tends to be lost in avoiding the next crash than in the crash itself. In other words, if you keep investing anyway, if your portfolio goes from ten to one hundred, then back to fifty. Well, you're still better off than having your $10 left and waiting to invest that money. So I think at some level, I'd, I would probably stick um, stick there. So there you go. Doc, is that, uh, is that a reasonable summary on that one? Well, I think that's a better answer than I could ever give. No, so. no, no, no. I meant, I meant both <laughs> the summaries. Um, all right, let's move on. A question from Liam. Morning, Scott and Doc. Hope you guys are well. I've recently started investing at 21 years of age. Wishing I had started sooner. Thank you, Liam. You know I hate when people tell me how young they are and how they're already investing. He says, I have $3,000 invested so far. Having turned that into 4,100 bucks, nice, with some small cap investing. He says, do you have any, that's a bit of a humble rag, Liam. I think I'm not entirely sure there's a, uh, <laughs> that's not a question that you just, want to, you just want to show off, but good on you. Well done. Uh, he says, do you have any brokerage recommendations to get into the US market? And then he finishes with, luckily Liam, also love the podcast. One of the most incredibly valued products I've come across so far. And I was thinking about that, Doc, and I thought, you know what? We are probably one of the only investment products in the entire world that has an exponential ROI, because if you don't pay anything, you get something value from it. How do you calculate that? Well, it's infinite return, right? Well, I think we should charge then. Infinite ROI. All right, we'll double our prices. How about that? We'll start there. Yeah, we go after that. Well, I think yeah, yeah. Let's double our prices, <laughs> mate. So this is one we get reasonably regularly. Liam's got a small amount of money, so some of the bigger U.S. brokers do require you to have a minimum investment uh, to open an account. If you were Liam, or if you're advising someone like Liam, we can't give Liam personal advice as ever. Uh, do you have a brokerage recommendation that you would suggest for Liam to start investing in the U.S.? Yeah, so lots of different options. Uh, like, I mean, um, I use um, Charles Schwab. Um, so I think I like their platform a lot. I think their platform is um, very easy to use, very user-friendly, lots of research, uh, very very agile. So it's a good platform. Um, Unfortunately, and- you have to have $25,000 US dollars to open a brokerage account with those guys. So that's probably not an option for, uh, for, for him just yet. That that is true. true. So that that actually changed. You used to be three thousand dollars. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, I did the same. Um, I joined when it was cheaper as well. Um, um, and that's one option. The the other option is to consider something like Stake, um, mm-hmm. which is you know it's got again a nice platform. I don't haven't used it um, mm-hmm. myself, but I know some of our colleagues use it. They so it's a. That's a free platform as such, but you pay on transactions. So basically, mm-hmm. when I say transactions, what I mean is when you transfer Australian dollars to uh, the moment you transfer Australian dollars into that account, it gets converted to USD at that rate plus, you know, at whatever is their, you know, so whatever is the exchange rate at that day plus a percentage, uh, point, I think 50 basis points is what they charge for 50 basis points or something. I forgot how much, exactly how much is 0.05%, 0.5%. I don't know. Uh, please look up what the costs are. So it, again, depends on how you want to do it. Uh, that might be an option. You could also transfer USD there by convert taking your money, say, to something like OzForex, converting to USD and then convert, uh, then sending it across. Then you pay a flat fee, uh, I believe $5 or $10. That's another that's platform. That's yeah, so that's another yeah, like I mean, that's another option. Um, I, I have actually found that option to be really good. Like mm. um, when I said manager Charles Shores, I always use OzForex. Uh, and they're not plugging in OzForex thinking we have no relationship. I use them largely because I find that I get a better rate. And then I know exactly how much how much I'm sending. And I send it across <laughs> in, instead, of, instead of waiting to get whatever rate I get there. And yeah. I found that, you know, because they, again, OzForex is a, is a foreign exchange uh, company, that's what yep. they do. Yep. <laughs> so you're likely to get the best rate there. Um, so use that. Then uh, other options use something like Saxo Bank. 
I'll caveat that they so they provide you access to all sorts of markets, uh, almost all European markets, Japanese market, Hong Kong market, US market, Australian market. They do charge a fee on your assets, uh, which can add up very quickly. Like so, if you, you know, I think the fee is like point point one two or point one one percent of your assets. So if you've got any substantial assets, you're you're basically paying a fee, um, asset under management fee, um, which I mean. You are managing your assets. You're still paying them the fee, so so, so you know you want to you want to consider that. Um, what else? Those are the, those are sort of the the key ones. I know some pe- other people use IG markets. Uh, some people use CMC markets, but I haven't used them, uh, so I have no experience or anything to offer. Very good, thank you, mate. I think it's a really uh, a really sum- good summary. So I'm not going to add anything to it. There's uh, some great recommendations from Doc. Doc, next question we have is from someone who just calls themselves B. So enough B is a guy or a girl or someone in between. We'll just have to say B. So B, thank you for the question. But it's more well, it's part question, part comment. And I kind of like the idea of this. I know you're not a big ETF guy, mate. But um, for those of those people who who are uh, mindful of how they might want to invest without taking their own uh, individual stock choices, I thought this was a particularly interesting one uh, and a cool a cool kind of analogy or a cool cool lesson. He says, hi, Scott and Doc. Hi, Scott and Doc. I just want to say a quick thank you for all your help with my footy tipping this year. Now, I didn't know we were doing footy tipping, mate, but it seems we were. A couple of years ago, B says, your podcast introduced me to the Humble Index ETF and how most portfolio managers fail to beat them. I've read a lot about this since, and this year I decided to run an experiment. Instead of spending my usual countless hours with spreadsheets and starting lists and player ratings and failing, falling agonizingly short in the work tipping comps again... I invested in the index. I simply tipped the bookie favorites all season. So how did it go? Well, I didn't win a single round all year in the NRL, AFL, or Super Rugby. But over the entire season, no one beat the market. Yep, I won all three tipping comps, he says, or she says. And while investing about 30 seconds of time each week. So thanks for the foolish insights. I thought it was just a really cool kind of idea, mate. And it's, it is, I mean, there's a couple of things here. The first, it's absolutely about, you know, picking the market and that's, that's reasonable. The other I thought was interesting about this, and it's not the analogy that B is drawing, but if you think about even, even man, you know, fund managers' performance themselves um, or individual stock pickers, the, the, the research shows that the stock pickers that are, fund managers that are best over 10 years are rarely great in any given individual given year. They tend to be moderate performers all the time. And there's something to that, right? That a lot of fund managers are boom and bust and a lot of funds are boom and bust. The guys that just kind of do the slow and steady, you know, we've talked before about the compounding, you know, slide out performance regularly over a very long time. Um, that tends to be the case as well. So whether you want to go the ETF route or the how to, how to beat the average in, in a fund management world, it does seem like just, you know, being moderately decent. As, as B says, I didn't win a single round all year in NRL, AFL or Super Rugby. But over the entire season, no one beat the market. Yep, I won all three comps. So that's I just thought was a, that was a pretty cool a pretty cool uh, story, mate. Any thoughts on that? Uh, I well, I have nothing. I have nothing really to add to that. So I'm going to no say worries. now. The, there is a question BP poses. Now a related hypothetical question: If suddenly one day everyone decided to invest in indexes, what would happen to markets? Thanks, guys, and hashtag full on B. What do you reckon, mate? I don't know. Like, I mean, what would happen? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, te- technically, you know, they said that the active buyers and sellers are actually setting price sellers, right? So if everybody's buying the index, I don't know what's going to happen. The market is probably <laughs> going to market is probably going to close. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. Actually, do you have an answer? Do you have a time? 
Uh, I have, I have a uh, no, not really. So a couple of thoughts. I think, um, I think indexes can be or indices, ETFs can be ninety percent of the market without any problems. Um, people worry about depth and liquidity and price discovery and that kind of stuff. If you look at the sheer growth in the amount of number of transactions over the last twenty five years, Doc, I don't know what the numbers are, but they're probably a hundred times in up hundred times in 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 number of transactions, a number of you know, in theory, price discovery um, moments. <laughs> so if you took that away and went back to nine eighty or 1985 and said, you know, if we only had that much activity, would it be okay? The answer is yes. And so the, the other 90%, the other 10% of the market, sorry, would give us more than enough activity for price discovery. Um, that would be as air quotes efficient as it normally is, but I don't think it's a big issue um, and certainly wouldn't outweigh the benefits of avoiding uh, saving a fortune in fees. So I, I, if everyone did it, I guess we'd never just have a different price. You, you, you transact at the last, at the last kind of, you know, um, uh, price discovered price if you know we say price discovery what we're really saying is price discovery is a fancy word for buyers and sellers getting together and working out what they think a company's worth and finding a midpoint uh, like any auction uh, and that's that's what they call price discovery so um i guess yeah at some point it would just <laughs> whatever the last kind of you know active investor traded the shares for if if, if woolworth's last price was 40 dollars before the last active investor gave up i guess they'd just be always trade at 40 bucks thereafter um as long as the etf maker market makers weren't uh, artificially uh, driving share price up or making making movements with just too much supply or demand. Um, yeah, I guess that's what had just happened, which would be kind of bizarre. But I don't think we need to worry about it. But but fair question, B. Thoughts on that, mate? No, I have nothing. I mean, it's an interesting thought. thought yeah, I have <laughs> no. nothing to add to that. Yeah. All right, we have a follow-up question from Little Miss Hair Eggs, who we talked about I think it was last week, the week before. She says, hi, Scott and Doc. Thank you for answering my last question. Our pleasure. She said, we've recently got those little share scooters here in Canberra. So I got interested in researching rideshare companies. This, of course, led me to read a bit about Uber. And I'm not sure if it wouldn't be better to invest in the film rights rather than the company. That's probably fair. Um, I also did a search in your podcast and came across one from 2018 in which you were talking about Buffett investing in Uber with somebody who was not Doc. Times change. That was Andrew, our, our erstwhile colleague. So I'm wondering if you two have any new views on the future of Uber or rideshare in general as an investment. And she says in brackets, I know this might lead Doc to talk about Tesla again. I'm sorry. You should be sorry, Little Miss Harry Legs. You owe me one. But I will I will let Doc off the leash on Tesla if, if he so desires to talk about it. But assuming, you know, I'll, I won't ask him to or ask him not to. I'll just say, Doc, your thoughts on rideshare in general and Uber in particular as investments today? Um, so I don't have much thoughts on Uber as an invest investment as such right now. Um so, so, I mean, you know, it has some very interesting appealing characteristics, right? So it's, a, it's a network effect business, which basically means as more more users use it, there are more drivers on the network. As more drivers on the network, more users use it. And it's one of those things where mm. effectively, you know, you can get this flywheel spinning and basically it's past the tipping point. It's very hard to unwind that spywheel, which when, uh, uh, flywheel, by which what yeah. I mean is that it's a for a competitor to come in and compete, it's just harder. So, you know, and such markets tend to have one or two uh, players. The So I think all of that is good. I think the, so there's a question of price and then the total market opportunity. I think the big unknown here is what happens when you have autonomy and where does Uber and Lyft fit in the autonomy game? Uh, that's a big question mark in my mind. And yeah, I, right. I don't, because I don't know what's going to happen how that might play out. Like mm-hmm. if somebody has autonomy and they're able to roll out their own uh, taxi fleet, um, that would be substantially more competitive mm-hmm. compared to a human-driven taxi fleet. Mm-hmm. And 
of course, there are all these other factors. You know, do you want to be in a, in a, in a taxi that's not been driven by a human, but by driven by a machine? But assuming that people are willing to do that, what's going to happen uh, happen there? I don't know the answer to that, which is why. Um, so put another way, I think the immediate future for Uber looks good, mm-hmm. except that there's this big cloud on the horizon for which I have no answer, which is why I haven't really <laughs> investigated it yeah, further. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it because you're, just, you're so concerned that autonomy will at some point take it over, there's not a lot of value in the meantime? Um, it's like it's so no, I, I really think autonomy is going to happen within the next five right. years right uh, and if that happens what's going to happen to these other businesses yeah, is really unknown and, and, and like I, I like I, I either like to have sort of a clear pathway that in place in my mind that I can see and have and see the optionality uh, there so uber is not really working actively as far as I know in 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 the autonomy area, right? They could, but I mean, you know, because they have all these cars, so that they could be collecting data, but they don't have any software that they're uh, uh, that they're running, which is mm. you know, experimenting or collecting data for making these decisions. So, I don't know. Like, I mean, as as a network mm. effect business, I think it's great, but I don't know. It's what its future looks like. So, mm. it's, again, I haven't done deep research, but I have these doubts, and effectively, my theory is that if I if I have doubts, there's so many companies in the world that it's, you know, if I have doubts, I basically say, well, okay, I'm going to pass on it because I don't have to get everything right. I just need to get the ones that I invest in right. And, uh, yeah, so it's one of those things. So I'm not saying it's a bad investment idea. I just don't have mm. a fully formed view, but I have some questions for which I don't have answers. Mm. I, I'm going to say, firstly, Matt, I think that answer is a really instrumental one for our listeners. So you don't have to have a view on everything. And, any unanswered questions that you can go two ways if the unanswered questions don't feel big enough then it's not it's always possible to make the investment anyway but there's absolutely zero shame in just going you know what i don't know and there are other things i know better and i'm gonna stick with those things i know better i think i've got a better chance of being right and that's the important thing right so separate out things i know and could find out more about or could have a speculator have a view on they're one group you don't get a limited amount of money and so you know if, if you've got other ideas that you simply have a better level of confidence on there's zero value or zero value in, in making yourself take a view on something that's just simply too hard to have a view on. There is value if you think you can get to a view on something that might be an outperformer, particularly if you think that now is a great time either because the market's undervaluing some part of its business or you know, either, either from a value perspective or a growth perspective, or undervaluing the growth or undervaluing some assets or something else. If there's potential value, by all means, spend some time. But as Doc Wright says, you know what? It's Uber, I don't know. I'm just going to give it a miss. I think that's a really, really smart strategy. I think it's one of the best strategies ever rather than saying, oh, I don't know, but maybe so I guess I'll buy some anyway or maybe not so I guess I'll avoid it. Um, if it's worth getting to a view and you can get to a view, do it. If it's not or you can't, then simply walk away. Um, mate, I'm going to... I'm going to. So, can I ask you a question? We discussed the team separately previously. We've talked about kind of complete autonomy and the proportion of things that autonomy is likely to be able to do. I mean, full, full autonomy is probably... I guess a decade, two decades away, but almost full autonomy, ninety-nine point something percent autonomy is is pretty close. I think I think you you are you seem convicted on that. I think that makes perfect sense. But I will defer to your better knowledge. If I think though about an autonomous taxi, if I think about my so my own car was autonomous ninety-nine point nine nine percent of the time, I can grab the wheel in the point zero zero one percent of times I need to. If I'm getting a taxi that's ninety-nine point nine 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 percent autonomous. I'm not sure I feel great about that. <laughs> I mean, you know, you multiply that by the number of kilometers it does. That you know, on average, once every X kilometers is going to encounter a situation it can't deal with. It, that to me feels like a showstopper for the very idea of a, an autonomous third-party vehicle, 
without a dedicated you know it's kind of chosen driver or whatever we call that driver might be supervisor or or you know take over in the in event of the car freaking out person um is i i would i don't know man maybe i'm being too negative here or too skeptical but i would have thought that's a showstopper for the industry maybe even for me as a passenger like complete autonomy i get it yep at some point, it was like, yeah, maybe, but maybe you get stuck at the end of a road that it can't work out how to turn around. And so you've, you know, you're, you're basically stuck there. You've got to get another Uber to go the other way and get you back. And someone's got to come and get the car. Um, is, is that is that a, a potential risk for the idea of autonomous taxis as such, as opposed to guided or, you know, kind of assisted or something else driving with a human driver? Um, so I, I don't, so it's a question is like, maybe the reverse question is, hmm. um, I, so I think getting stuck somewhere on popular brain, routes, or like whatever, whatever combination of stuff that the car says, yeah. I don't know how to do this, and so it just has to stop or, or something else. Yeah. So, so I don't know. Like I mean, at some point, mm. if you if you can get to ninety nine point nine 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 percent reliability, mm, mm, mm. the question really at that point is: is that better than human driver? And if it's better than a human driver, I don't mean safer. I mean literally, that gets to a point where it just can't. It doesn't know what. To, like, human driver can always take an action, right? You can always say a human a human driver will probably crash more than an autonomous car. That's not the bit I'm worried about per se. It's the stuff where it's like it, it encounters the thing it just isn't programmed to deal with and can't with its own AI work out. So it literally has some event where it's like I, I just I, I don't know what to do here. I, I physically have no ability to to take an action. And so then what, right? Like the human driver can always have a crash and then get out of it or, you know, and I'm not saying, you know, it's not, not the reverse. It's just that sense of, you know, is there, is there a scenario where the car just stops and goes, I don't know what to do here. You're going to have to get out. And, and in that case, do you do you want to get in that taxi? Or it stops on the freeway or it as a as a animal it hasn't recognized or and I, I don't want to use specific examples because there's reasons why those things may be not the right questions. But in the sense that it just simply isn't trying to deal with everything, I don't know what it does. And I don't know if that stops it being a reasonable autonomous car with no human in absolute control in the event of that 0.0001 event yeah so uh, uh, okay so I don't actually worry about that largely because I think okay. the way it would roll out is you would have data of uh, starting points and ending points that work out right okay, okay right, right, right right so so you would have data of places that the cars before because remember mm -hmm. before you go to this fully autonomous mode you would have driven mm -hmm. semi-autonomous right yeah, so that's the whole part of it so you'd have data on 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 destinations that are achievable from a certain point oh, okay. to a place so i think that the, so the probability that, i think the probability that you're going to be you know if you're going to be stuck in a autonomous vehicle that can't get you from place mm -hmm. a to place b Mm. is actually extremely low. I think I, I'd almost be as comfortable as saying it's 0. 0.00001%. <laughs> yeah, right. 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 Yeah. So it's extremely, extremely low. Yeah, okay. I think I think the way, whether, the, I think the main magic is mm. the reliability and what reliability point. When I reliability, I mean, what's the probability is going to get into an accident? Yeah. And maybe the better question to ask is they're probably going to get you an accident in which you're going to be injured significantly. Totally. Right. And the point at which that becomes significantly lower than human driver yeah i think it's just a, it's basically a complete no-brainer right because it, there will be those cases where it can't do it yeah you would just not get a yeah, right. a you know you'd probably get a human assisted driver for those cases because it yeah, needs yeah. to learn right yeah, so there'll be yeah so one way to roll it out would be you mm -hmm. first roll it out using human drivers yeah right then you roll it out with a fleet which is partial human drivers mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. completely not autonomous yeah, yeah and then slowly 
your human drivers go away. Mm. Now, I, I, I think I have, and just to finish off Little Miss Hairy Legs' question, I don't know your name, but we'll call you that. That's why you called yourself on Twitter, so we'll go with that. Um, the uh, In that world, there would still be a chance that, you know, Uber is not the drivers, right? By, by very definition, it, it contracts drivers. It could simply turn those drivers off tomorrow and have a fleet of cars and do that anyway. Um I think I've heard you talk about this before, so I'll ask you the question without giving an answer because you may choose to differ or, or maybe I've just mischaracterized it. But would Uber not be worth investing in even in an autonomous world simply because it just says, well, we used to have someone in that seat. We're taking someone out of the seat. The car's not doing its own thing. Um, we're just going to use that that car and, and do that. What, you know, is that not – given that you own the fleet organizer, not the not the drivers, you know, I wouldn't want to buy an Uber driver's future earnings, but buying Uber's future earnings in, in, a, in a world where there are simply no human drivers but Uber controls or organizers or – coordinates uh, an autonomous fleet, that could still be worth investing in, couldn't it? It could, except that what if uh, Uber is not able to actually facilitate um, autonomous driving? Hmm. You're making the assumption that Uber will be able to facilitate autonomous driving or would be, have access to that technology or would mm-hmm. be able to build that technology or be able to buy the technology, right? Mm-hmm. And if it buys that technology, what is the cost it's paying, et cetera, yeah, right. et cetera, et cetera, right? So I think it's... Yeah, it's again one of those things where if you don't have the primary technology required to achieve something, mm-hmm. you're always at a disadvantage from a starting point. Um, yep. I don't know. So that's the answer there is that, mm. yeah, they're basically, they're not doing work on that area. So mm. what happens over the long term is unclear. I'm curious as to what you think about a business. So obviously Tesla's the one with the, the most in-house technology and the most able to do something like this. As an investor, as a shareholder, as, a, as someone who thinks about this a lot, well, so I'll ask you a question, but I'll make an observation. I want to separate. That's you're the person, not me. But but I'll make an observation and ask you for your responses. I don't know that I want to own shares in a company. So give give the choice of owning Tesla as it is today, or any other business you could buy, or a future Tesla that has that owns a fleet. In other words, super capital intensive, making a small margin on a really super capital intensive business. That is, you're putting 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 dollar cars on the road. I mean, the, the car rental companies that go broke at a rate of knots. I think there's, there might be one left in the US now. They've all kind of merged and gone broke, merged and gone broke, merged and gone broke. Maybe there's two, I'm not sure. Hertz has certainly gone broke. I think Avis and now Avis budget, something else all, all combined. I mean, this is a, this is a, rental cars are a crappy business model. Because you're, you're, you're buying the car, you're getting someone to pay you a rate. Now, in Avis's case, it's a daily rate, but in Uber's case or Tesla's case, it might be a per kilometer, per minute rate, whatever it is. The ROIs of these things are terrible. They're super capital intensive. This would ordinarily be the sort of business you'd run a mile from. Do, do, do you want Tesla to own a fleet of you know, multi-billion dollars worth of vehicles that they're making a small margin on and, and becoming a, a capital intensive, low margin you know, kind of taxi operator or someone else? Or does Uber itself become more Avis, less... Less, you know, Uber once it gets to that point, and just massive capital equipment costs. I'm, I'm curious as to what the business model looks like and and how scalable it can be once you get to that sort of point for that part of the business in anyone's hands. Uber's, Tesla's, Avis's, yours, mine. I don't know. I'd want to buy that business necessarily. Yeah. So an autonomous fleet uh, would have very high margins. Have software-like margins. That's the key to remember. So basically, but even but even with a you know, tens of thousands of dollar piece of equipment, I mean, to make eighty percent margin on a, on a thirty thousand dollar car, that that's still a phenomenally large. I mean, you know, doing it without the car is better, right? You rather you rather sell the software than the, than than own the vehicle. You've got to try and make a per kilometer or per day or per hour charge on. Isn't that still kind of the, the, the sheer capital cost of that that fleet? Well, well like I mean, well, so if you ask Elon Musk this question, his answer would be <laughs> that you would be paying five thousand dollars for the car. 
right. and $100,000 for the software. Okay, That's so, the value so proposition. Think, okay, so, right, okay. So, so, but if, so if, the if reason, Tesla self-owned the fleet, it wouldn't have that option, right? All you could do is charge stuff out per hour. So if, if Tesla was running the fleet itself... $5,000, but the car is worth $5,000, let's say, or $10,000 or whatever it is worth, right, right? right? But the software has already been developed. Yes, yep. And you're just refining the software. So it's a recurring revenue stream into forever mm. with very little competition. This is like this is like the dream come true, right? If you if you, if you own the market and you own all of it, and mm. um, you know you're the only one which actually has it because that's the the pathway to get there is a pretty limited mm. narrow pathway. Um, what do you do? It, but the margins, it's the like have to have to maximize that because the, the competition ends up being a human driver in a car, so you yeah. can't charge more than that. In theory, you've probably got to charge less than that, maybe even meaningfully less than that, because people are freaked out about the idea of autonomy. But maybe it's not. I mean, the maximum price you can ever charge is is the equivalent of a driver in a car. Yeah. So that that's capping your upside. Can so, you really produce the car for so much yeah, less so, than that to give you those margins? So, so I think the cost there is a cost per mile that exists currently. Right. Let's say for gas-driven vehicles, you can get that. So it's something like a dollar. Uh, what is it like seventy cents or something like that? And you bring that down on an autonomous world to maybe something like twenty cents. Right. There is a huge, there is a huge arbitrage opportunity there. Okay. Um, by so there are a couple of other things that happen, right? So, so one is you our fleet. So, so this is, a, this is like multiplexing um, on the internet, right? Mm. So, if you have an internet pipe, mm. most of the time it's used at night. But if you can use it all the time, somehow, then you're using the same thing more often, right? So if yeah, you can totally. just keep the... So basically, an autonomous car would be... Currently, a car is on the road for five hours, ten mm-hmm. hours, because it has a person associated with it, right? Yeah. If you if you throw... You, you would need fewer cars to achieve the mm-hmm. same miles. Yeah. And if your cars are, are longer-lasting, then effectively, your fixed hardware cost is amortized much more quickly mm-hmm. um, because yeah, it makes yeah, you... Yeah. Yeah. So I think, base, yeah. yeah. So I think you, it's not that you need a much larger fleet. You just need a fleet that's always on, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. Right. yeah I, I mean, I think there's a, there's a case. Yeah. Interesting, man. I like that. I said I, I would, I would, I would run a mile from investing in any, <laughs> any, any kind of business that said, "Hey, we're going to spend a squillion dollars on vehicles and then try and make a small margin on top of that." Uh, maybe, maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way, but we'll, we will see. I like the answer. Thank you. All right, um, little Miss Harry Legs, you're you're forgiven for mentioning Doc Tesla. Thank you very much. Motley Fool Money, financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. A question from Patrick, mate. He says, first name only, please. And luckily, I've passed that test, so we don't have to go and edit the podcast. Hi, Scott and Doc. I love listening every week. I've been listening since the start of the year. Keep up the great work. Thank you, mate. So I've got a question for the podcast. I started my investing journey just after the March downturn. Nice work. And bought my first shares in a company that was down from over $3 for just a buck. COVID seems not to have affected it too much, and it's now getting close to its $3 high. That's pretty good. Well done, mate. Its dividend is $0.10, cents, which is about 10% return on the initial investment. However, at $3, its dividend yield is 3.33%. So let's just go through those numbers again for a second. It's paying $0.10 cents a share, which is 10% of the original purchase price. So his yield on his purchase price is 10%. But that same $0.10 cents with a $3 share price is a running yield of 3%. So much, much lower, at least because the, the share price is up. His question is, should I always think of the yield percentage of my original investment, which is the 10%, 
Or if it has stagnant growth and dividend growth down the track, reconsider my investment. Cheers, Patrick. I love this question, Doc, because it's one of those ones where plenty of people, including some of the fool, by the way, some of our fellow shareholder, uh, fellow employees, think about um, dividend yields in different ways. Now, I know you're not a dividend investor, so you may choose to simply skip the question, which is also fine. Um, but it's it's a it's a it's a question on on to some degree anchoring, and but it's a, it's the right question. If you if you spend a dollar and you generate a ten percent return for effectively perpetuity in that purchase price, that's pretty attractive. On the other hand, if it's only a three percent yield now and he wants more, which number should he be prioritizing in his own mind when he thinks about the investment? Yeah. So okay. So a couple of different answers. One is if you if you if you really bought this for dividend dividend income. Then, well, how much income you're getting and whether or not it satisfies your income requirement is, I guess, the main question that you're probably interested in, right? But, but perhaps the better way to think about any investment is to think about the combination of the income you're getting and the potential return you're going to get out of it, right? I mean, ultimately, mm. you're in the stock for returns, for a dividend plus capital gains returns, mm-hmm. Um combined perspective right so uh, again say the stock is still attractive and the company is still attractive to own um you know you've got plenty of upside you know to continue owning it but you know if the company is already overvalued and Mm. and your yield is less then i would reconsider so i mean there's a question of you know how the company is valued at this point in time and what you think about it its futures i guess the question in my mind and then the other question i said Mm -hmm. you know how much yield what income do you need really out of it? I'm not an income investor, but that's what I would think about. I love that question. I love that answer, Doc. Actually, I wasn't the answer, the direction I was going. So I love, I love the extra, extra context. Thank you, um, Patrick. My thoughts. So we, we actually run a service called Motley Fool Everlasting Income. It's not a plug for that, but we have the same ongoing question, right? We have a, we have a question of you know what, what yield are we getting, and what is the share price doing? And as Doc says, firstly, is you know total return for most people should be your priority. Now, EI actually isn't. We don't run a total return service. The only total return service we don't run, or sorry, say that again. The only service we run that isn't a total return focused service because we are focused on income specifically. But in this case, it's the same kind of approach because we're looking at it and saying, okay, well, if, here's the thing, you had a dollar and you bought 10 cents of income, you now have $3. You can choose if you want to maximize your income. Simply, what would I do with that $3? So rather than thinking about the percentages, the only question you really need to ask yourself is, I had a dollar to invest. I found 10 cents of income. That's fantastic. Now I've got $3. How much income can I buy with that $3? And if the answer is more than 10 cents, the percentages and the historical prices needn't matter to you. If, as Doc says, if income is your only question, and let's just separate it now. I don't think it should be. Let's just separate it for the second. The only question really is if I have, if I was forced to sell my entire portfolio every night, which is a nice, I would never say people do it, but it's nice way to think about it. Would I, would I spend my $3 and buy back the company I have at its current yield? And if the answer is, well, of course not, because it's not doing 10% anymore, that's probably an indication of how you should think about what to do next. So think about the current cash flow you're getting and how much you could otherwise get in a different investment. And as Doc says rightly, also think about the total return and the future potential total return because while EI is absolutely run as a tax-effective income stream for our members, that's for, for some people, that's exactly what they want. It's also fair, Doc would say this as well, I was probably not saying to be kind to me, um, you could potentially get a better income stream by simply getting a gro- better growth in your capital base and selling a small amount of that those shares every year to fund your income. There's, there's very different ways to skin the same cat. So um, think about that. But look, I, I would absolutely never personally think about, for, look, 
If you want to give yourself a pat in the back, by all means, compare it to your previous starting price. At some point, by the way, if that if that those dividends keep going up, you might get a dividend that's 100% of your purchase price. That's a great investment. So pay yourself on the back for investing really well. But your only question now is at $3, whether it's income or capital growth or total return, where should that $3 be best invested to maximize my return in any or all of those criteria? Anything else on that, Doc? I have nothing to add. Beautiful. Mate, here's a, here's a long one we got from uh, uh, via the mailbag. The, uh, the, the email, sorry, I should not mailbag, the email. A long question, a long comment from Bernard. Now, I like some of this. So this is, this is a really worthwhile conversation to have. And it challenges a little bit respectfully and nicely. But here we go. Hello, Captain and Doc. And g'day, Bernard. For old time's sake, he says, I love the podcast. Listen to it twice a week and have done so for years. It's five stars from me. There. I hope you feel better, Scott. <laughs> so thank you, Bernard. I do, mate. I do. I hope you've also, by the way, shared that on uh, the review page of the podcast app you're using because, hey, you can tell us that's fine. But if you tell other people, that's what we'd really, really like. Anyway, so <laughs> Bernard goes on. Anyhow, I'd appreciate the views of you two Sin City Sages, podcasting prophets and insightful investors. like it. like a bit of alliteration, mate. I'm a big fan of alliteration. On the view of Burton Malkiel. He's Professor Emeritus of Economics at Princeton University and author of the book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. And he says the best way to invest is to have a core of broad-based ETFs in your portfolio and leave them alone for as long as possible. I read his book, Bernard says, and Buffett's and many, many of the other old guys before I started investing. I tried doing it their way, broad-based ETFs, bonds, property ETF, for the first year and a bit of my investing, and I lost to the market. Then I stumbled on The Motley Fool. Firstly, the guys in the US. The fools tipped the views of the old guys upside down. They said, yep, you can, with our help, beat the market. Don't believe us, here are our results. I looked, and lo and behold, it was true. I promise I didn't write this. Bernard wrote this, I promise. Bernard says, I became a full fool investor, subscribing to USA and Australian services, and I'm now streaking the market by picking mostly from the fool universe with a few of my own picks. My biggest winner is up 10 times the loss of my biggest loser. Yes, I'm happy with that. So you should be, mate. Well done. My fear is this. Can I and the fools keep this going for years? Or is Uncle Warren, Dr. Malkiel, and the university professors everywhere right? Sometimes I wonder if the old guys have roadmaps for old roads and old terrain, and therefore they are good guides, but things have changed a lot since they wrote their views, and thus can't fully be relied upon. There you go, he says. Fear and greed in one question. (coughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, so there's a, there's a small there's a small um a small aside from Bernard, and I will I will share it. Sorry, Doc. By the way, Doc, Apple's thirty percent skim is in, in its app store is a gouge and anti-competitive. Only the oil cartels do better at gouging than Apple, and the oil is gone. Apple's time is ticking. TikTok, TikTok will also be surpassed as kids outgrow it, and the next gen find their own new thing to identify with. So relax, Doc. No need to TikTok, Doc. Hashtag Binsta the Insta. <sighs> A suggestion for Doc, he finishes with, Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Cost a crumb, returns a fortune. Fool on Bernard. Bernard, you've covered the waterfront there. A bit of a, a let off for Doc on TikTok. A bit of a whack over the head for the apples gouging, although, as we said on Friday, that's now lower. I'd be interested to see whether you still believe that, but uh, either way, you're entitled to that view. But let's roll all the way back up, mate. Dr. Burton Malkiel says, don't bother trying to invest, just buy the index. Everything that is knowable is known. Everything that is knowable is priced into the market. Why would you bother? And I guess to his point, firstly, he's saying, look, I've ignored that and won, but is there some sense that there's some mean reversion that eventually whatever has allowed us to succeed starts to maybe get arbitraged away or just go away by itself? Is it really worth trying to beat the market still? 
or is Burton Malkiel right? Now, he mentioned Warren Buffett as well. Buffett's not an indexer, but he does suggest that his estate be left uh, 90% in an index, basically because he doesn't want uh, his his uh, heirs to have to invest that money independently. So that's a different question, but Buffett has definitely said that, and people use that as a, as a reason. Say, hey, ETFs are great. Buffett's doing it. Uh, just to be clear, Buffett's not doing it. Buffett's saying, well, I'm no longer here. I don't trust you knuckleheads to do it well, so just throw it in an index. Anyway, that's a big, big intro, mate. Is the time of our outperformance coming to an end? Should Bernard simply just say, it's been great, but I'm going back to the research and the research says, you know what, it's all random, just buy an ETF. Well, I, I wouldn't uh, you know, promise anything, but I think you know, we've got many more years potentially of our performance. That's, that's number one. I mean, I think the number two thing is what I think Buffett says and is, you know, you just put it out, right? Basically, Buffett is saying, well, you know, not everyone... Well, I, I, I wouldn't even say not everyone can do it, can't do it, mm-hmm. right? I think everybody can do it if they apply themselves. The problem is mm-hmm. ap- application is just, yeah, some people don't have time for application. Some people don't have the mindset for application. Some people don't want to build the mindset for the application, right? Required yeah. to succeed in individual stock picking and for, 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 for any number of reasons, right? Some people might have a very busy job that just basically makes it very hard for mm-hmm. them to, to build that mindset or mm-hmm. invest that time. So... I think what you know, each one of those people uh, are trying to say. I'm not sure what the um, uh, a random walk uh, part. I mean, I think if the theory is that the markets are always efficient, then well, you you know why bother? But the markets are not efficient. We there's, there's plenty of proof, especially the markets are very poor at understanding long term, um, substantive long term shifts. Just because, you know, it's very hard for, you know, on average for human beings to understand long-term substantial shifts or think about, you know, 20% plus compounded return, uh, compounded growth of revenues, right? So true, um, yeah. Uh, again, like, you know, Amazon, as, as Kevin would say, had a dollar, has a billion dollars of sales uh, per day last, last quarter. <laughs> That's amazing, huh? Nobody in 1997 in right, any spreadsheet, right. even right. if we were building that spreadsheet, would make that prediction. You couldn't. You, you, could, you couldn't in any good conscience put a number that big in and I think it was even close to being reasonable, right? You'd, you'd have yeah, to you, bring you, it down and say, couldn't possibly be that. Let's make, let's make, let's make, look, let's just make $100 million just in case. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, you would you'd feel stupid, downright right, stupid, yes, actually, yes, putting yes. that number down, down there. So totally. that's, I think, and that's how the human mind works. And, mm-hmm. and if, so I think if that's the case, then there's going to be always opportunities. So you have to mm-hmm. you have to think about those opportunities. So I think there's going to be opportunities, but for a large majority of people, there's nothing wrong with a bunch of different diversified mm-hmm. ETFs because, I mean, hey, if you, if you don't have the time inclination, then at least you're going to get a combination of those market returns. You know, maybe you buy like mm-hmm. a, um, you know, ASX 200 or ASX 300. Maybe you buy, you know, S&P 500. Maybe you buy an emerging ETF fund and you've got those three things. You've covered the world and you get some some hybrid combination of those returns. Mm. It's, it's, I'm willing to say it's likely to beat the bank uh, term deposits that you're going to get, <laughs> which is, um, you know, which is something, right? Which is already yeah. you're ahead. So I think what they're saying is that invest anyway. Um, that's that's what I would say. I think I think that's right, Doc. I think I think it's look. I I have a lot of empathy for the question. I think it's fair to say you know at the good times going. I think that's always been the case. 
I will say Random Walk was written many decades ago and certainly plenty of investors have outperformed the index since then, uh, showing that it seems to be remain to be possible. I think what I what what the Malkiel stuff and, and Buffett himself is, has actually addressed this specifically. So while it's tempting Bernard to put Buffett in the in the indexing camp, and again he is for his his uh, his his heirs, his, his estate. He himself wrote a, a, a book or sorry, an article entitled The Super Investors of Graham and Doddsville. Now, Doc is not a, a Buffett investor. I, I am a bit of a Buffett investor. Buffett himself isn't a Buffett investor the way he used to do it years ago. So we need to make sure we're keeping up with what Buffett is. But he made the point way back then that there was a group of people who have consistently shown outperformance and the chances of that outperformance, you know, the, the it, it doesn't, it doesn't, tr- it doesn't, gel with the statistical odds of those successes happening in other words it just it you know <laughs> the the actual performance uh, the other thing about you know yogi Berra quote right in theory there's no difference between theory and practice but in practice there is um so it's, it's kind of buffett's broad point so i think it's very likely that people go on to keep beating the market i do think for what it's worth we need to be a little bit careful to make sure that you are finding and following investors who have continued long-term track records because anyone could beat the market in one year or two years or three years we talked before in fact the question about the ETF followers and the, the fund managers. Um, you probably don't want the the guy who is right every single year for a few years in a row because that's a really unlikely trend to continue, ironically. So it's kind of one of those hard things where you want to go with someone who's consistently above average. Um, if you find someone who's consistently excellent, that's different, of course. But you want to make sure you're looking at the returns they're earning that are decent for a long time rather than a couple of flash in the pan years followed by a couple of terrible years because, um, in fact, one of those super investors of Graham and Dodsville, by the way, I can't remember his name, Doc, maybe maybe luckily for him or maybe I'm just blanking out to be kind, um, was, was a super investor for 40 years and then bet big on the banks before the GFC. Uh, in the GFC, because they were crashing. It was, like, he was, just, it was doubling up, doubling up, doubling up. Lost a fortune, absolute fortune. I think he closed his fund in the end. And this is a guy with like a 40-year track record who eventually just completely, you know, one bad bet, one 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 roll of zero in roulette and, and the whole thing goes away. So um, it's worth just keeping that in mind. So you want to make sure someone has a decent long-term track record of success before backing them. But I think it's almost inevitable that while ever there are inefficiencies in the market, and Doc is dead right, there is no such thing as an efficient market, that the the, the academics want there to be because it kind of suits them in that for that group of academics are saying, well, you know, if, if we exclude the things that aren't right and that don't make sense, look, it all makes sense. Uh, it's like, yeah, that's that's true. But um, it's... It, it, it's said that the, the evidence seems very, very, very uh, likely to suggest that it is possible to outperform the market consistently. If you're good, there are very few who are good enough, uh, but I, I, I would bet against uh, Random Walk being right. It hasn't been since publication. I don't think it'll start being right yet. Any follow-up to that, Doc? No, sir. One last question we've got time for, mate, and I think you have an answer for this one, but I'm going to ask it because Jesse asked the question. It's the right question. Jesse, and there's a bit of a bit of a nice nice uh, opening too. Thank you, Jesse. Jesse says, "Hi, Scott and Doc. Thanks to your podcast, I f- now feel so much more comfortable investing. That honestly makes the whole podcast worth it. Thank you, Jesse." She says, "It's been such a great learning experience." Then she has a question: With the Australian share market going crazy this week, and that was last week, so you know, but but done well since. So going crazy in a good way. I've almost recovered all my losses from my mistake share purchases from earlier this year. Banks, telcos, and resources. Do you think it's wise to rotate out of these low growth and cyclical stocks now that I can get out without losing any money? Or should I hang on for the ride? I'm keen to move into more growth dividend stocks and I only have so much capital. Thanks so much, Jesse. Jesse, awesome question. Thank you very much. And we are genuinely stoked, mate. If we're helping you invest and it's making it easier and you feel more comfortable doing it, that's exactly what we're here for. So thank you for those kind words. It makes us feel good. It makes the podcast worthwhile. Doc, is it time 
to rotate out now that Jesse's made almost all her money back? Well, uh, Jesse, we can't give you any, any personal advice, so we don't know what is right for you. That's the number one thing I'll say. Um, it's the, You've got to make the call. If you make the call that you want to be a focused on more growth-based companies, then the companies that you're listed definitely are not the ones that are growing very fast, right? They pay nice dividends, but they're not growing fast. Um, yeah, so then in, if that's the case, then maybe now is the time to get into growth. And like, uh, like what I like, actually, now is the time as good as any other time because, you know, <laughs> investing is not a one-time endeavor. You want to in- invest over a long period of time. You want to invest, you know, whenever you have some spare capital that you want to put to work. Um, and investing in growth companies is a, is a strategy that requires you to invest over a period of time because I think um, that gives you better return. It, it helps you smooth out some of the volatility, at least in your mind. You you less worry about, you know, um, stocks moving back and things like that. So, yeah, now is as good as the time as any other. Mm, nice. I like it, mate. I think, Jesse, I, I, yeah, look, I think you've heard us answer a question earlier. I think this one for me is a little bit the same. Um, I wouldn't have even waited till you got your money back, mate. It, it, you, you only want to, a bit like the, um, the the guy who made money, who'd gone from a dollar to three. The only real question is where, where can I make most money from that $3 now, regardless of whether he's up, down or backwards. If your shares were down 90% or up 900%, I would only ask you, where is the place you should have that money to maximize your long-term returns? That's the only thing that matters. Whether you're down by half or up by double, when you're down by 90%, up by 900%, as I said, the only thing you need to think about is, okay, if I was forced to sell my portfolio tonight, would I reinvest in the stocks I own now? If the answer is no, and of course, you've got to think about tax, but other than that, if the answer is no, then you should be investing in other areas where you feel more comfortable, where you think the long-term returns are going to be higher. And I hope that, I hope that makes kind of instinctive sense. So tempting, absolutely say, I'll wait till I get my money back. Uh, let's, let me give you an example. Let's say you, you bought a company for a dollar, shares fell to 90 cents. You said, I'll wait till I get my money back. I'll sell them at a buck. In the meantime, the company you're going to buy goes from $10 to $100. Now, the cost in air quotes of waiting to make your money back, the 10 cents you were worried about cost you a tenfold return that you didn't get because you're waiting to get that money back. So it's always painful to sell for a loss. It's always painful to have money. Uh, so a position in your portfolio that's down. It's psychologically taxing. It's financially difficult. Uh, and it's tempting to want to say, look, when it gets back, when I've made my money back, at least then I can say it doesn't owe me anything and I'll go somewhere else. That's very, very reasonable, very rational, very normal. It's just not the best way to invest. The best way to invest is simply to say, ignore what you paid for the shares completely and say, I've got shares worth X. Would I, if I didn't own them today, would I buy them or would I buy something else? And if the answer is I would buy something else, then I think you probably have your answer. Any more on that, Doc? No, sir. Jesse, thank you again for the question. That's a really nice way to finish this particular mailbag episode, I reckon, Doc. So that does wrap us up. Now, I should mention, if you do want to join a Motley Fool service, today I'm going to suggest you join Motley Fool Share Advisor, not instead of EO, but as well as EO, because hopefully you did that on Friday. If you did it on Friday, you would have used the link fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. So if you have used that, great. If you haven't, check that out. But in the meantime, also, because, you know, also is better than either or, We'd like you to join Motley Fool Share Advisor. Now, this is our flagship investing service, our very first one here in Australia. Started in 2011. We are very close to our ninth anniversary on Share Advisor, if you believe that, Doc. It feels like it feels like only yesterday and also a lifetime ago that we started Share Advisor. Uh, but 
have, give it a go. It's market beating. It's done a really good job. I think across the group, we've been. I've worked with some great investors over the last nine years to find the very best medium and large cap, largely growth stocks we can find. And we've done a pretty good job thus far. Again, no guarantees in the future, but I think a really good job. These days, I run it with Andrew Leggett, our colleague. And we're looking to find, as I said, the best companies we can find in that medium, large cap space. Normally, some growth stocks. We've, we do kind of go a bit all over the place. Stock, one of our more recent success stories, actually Nine Entertainment, believe it or not, where we got a 50-ish percent gain um, from a bike which we thought was too cheap. It was never going to be a forever stock, but we managed to, to get it on, on special and uh, and sell it when we thought the full value was there. But other stocks are up three, four, five hundred percent because we just like their business and we're happy holders for the very long term. So wherever we find them, we're looking for the best medium and large cap companies we can. Thus far, as I said, we're beating the market. We continue to hope doing that. So if you're keen to get some extra foolishness as well as EO, join us at SA at ShareAdvisor at Fool au forward slash SA podcast. All right, that's it for this Sunday. Time for us to go and enjoy the rest of the weekend, Doc. Pretending we're recording this on a Sunday because, you know, it's all about theatre of the mind. Before we go, though, please do subscribe to the Triple M Motley for Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app or, of course, the new Podcast One app where we're featured. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Five stars would be lovely. If you wouldn't mind, please do tell your friends because, hey, who could use a bit of foolish straight talk in their lives as well? And, of course, speaking of that, you can get some foolishness and a little bit of marketing straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash... Triple M. Triple M. This week, by the way, I talked about stamp duty and the price of buying a new home. So if you're keen, if you're in that market, you want to have a look, make sure you do subscribe to that mailing list. That's the sort of stuff. Plus some investing ideas, some market commentary, uh, some stocks I talk about every now and again. Jump on that one. That's it. In the meantime, for this week's Motley Fool Money, we'll be back next Friday with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.